Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Royal Retros, the king of throwbacks. Hey, if you're looking for teams and leagues that don't exist anymore, but you'd like to remember them in high quality jersey or uniform format. Hey, some of those teams were legendary. Some of them were disasters, but they all live at Royal Retros. Check them out. RoyalRetros.com. Use that promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Check them out now. And now, check out this episode. Tonight, there's a new life for an effort to get a new NHL hockey team right here in Metro Atlanta, but we're going to be facing some big competition. Voters in Tempe, Arizona, rejected taxpayer funding for a new arena for the NHL Coyotes. 11 Alive's Doug Richards, though, has a look at what that could mean here. The NHL Coyotes in Arizona need a new home. Tuesday, voters in Tempe, Arizona, went to the polls to decide whether to use taxpayer funding to build a new hockey arena. I don't really want my tax dollars going that direction. Voters rejected the project. We are just absolutely thrilled. With that door all but closing in suburban Phoenix, another door opens in metro Atlanta, says Fulton County Commission Chairman Rob Pitts. We're in the right place at the right time, and there's no better part of the country uh, to support a, a, a new uh, NHL franchise than Atlanta and Fulton County and the state of Georgia. Pitts was here when the NHL Thrashers spent 12 years in Atlanta, then left more than a decade ago amid ownership turmoil. Before that, the Thrashers often packed the facility now known as State Farm Arena. Pitts says it could happen again. And I think that the demographics have changed and it will be even more popular than it was before. The Thrashers weren't the first. In the 1970s, an NHL team called the Flames played here. Like the Thrashers, they left Georgia for destinations in Canada. Now Arizona faces the same prospect. I think it's something, again, that we ought to vigorously support and, and, uh, and pursue. Atlanta reportedly has competition for the Coyotes. Those cities would include Salt Lake City, Houston, and even Phoenix, which is just up I-10 from Tempe. In downtown Atlanta, Doug Richards, 11 Alive News. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello, hello. How's it going, everybody? Your pal Tim Hanlon here, and it's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted each and every week to what used to be in professional sports. How are you? Thanks for coming by. We appreciate it. Hope you're staying warm. It's been a brutal winter. At least uh, the first couple of weeks of 2024 where we are, and uh, I suspect uh, in many parts of the United States, at least probably also where you are too. Hope you're staying warm and cozy, and uh, hope we can uh, entertain you for an hour and change this week uh, to keep your mind off of the shoveling and the ice and all that kind of stuff. Uh, However, we are going to stay in the realm of the ice. We're going to be talking about hockey again. Uh, Always enjoy that process. And uh, a return guest from uh, now two years ago. Uh, Professor Thomas Aiello is back with us. Uh, you may remember our episode 244 uh, called Dixie Ball uh, with Tom. Uh, that was uh, a, a wonderful and a very enlightening conversation uh, devoted to uh, the history of uh, pro basketball uh, and uh, in the Deep South uh, when it uh, is uh, juxtaposed uh, with the understanding of the political and cultural and social history of the South. Uh, that, bo- that book, of course, was called Dixie Ball Race and Professional Basketball in the Deep South. And uh, we talk about the Hawks and the Pelicans 
uh, and the New Orleans Jazz and the uh, ABA Buccaneers in that conversation. Uh, but this week, we're going to kind of focus on on hockey and, and more specifically on Atlanta and hockey. And uh, Lord knows we've had some uh, interesting uh, dalliances with that topic with a number of different guests. Uh, and uh, of course, as our astute listeners will uh, remember, the Flames uh, were the first NHL hockey team uh, to take a chance in uh, 1971-ish in Atlanta. And of course, uh, that uh, didn't last very long. And who came back later on but a second attempt, the Atlanta Thrashers, which we've talked about uh, on a previous episode or two. Uh, Lord knows if uh, a, a third version will uh, will ever come to Atlanta. Um, but uh, as we talk with our guest this week, Tom Aiello, in his new book, White Ice, Race and the Making of Atlanta Hockey, uh, we certainly uh, delve into the possibility that a third time might be a charm for the NHL coming back to, to Atlanta. Uh, but uh, before we kind of uh, entertain that uh, possibility, uh, we get into very similar themes like we talked about with hoops in Atlanta with our in our previous conversation a couple of years back. Uh, we kind of delve into the, same, into the same issues as it relates to the evolution and the concept, frankly, even of pro hockey in Atlanta, a deep south city that uh, only in the mid to late 1960s really came into its own when it came to uh, professional sports. You have to remember that prior to uh, the uh, mid-1960s, uh, Atlanta had nothing really uh, going on in terms of pro sports. Uh, but then along came the Braves and Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and the Falcons. Uh, the St. Louis Hawks had uh, arrived and become the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, pro hockey, the NHL in particular, uh, was not part of that landscape. Yes, minor league was certainly part of, part of the, uh, the dynamic, uh, but it wasn't until 1971 uh, when the NHL decided to um, uh, bring its uh, expansion freight train. Uh, and again, remember that the late 60s to early 1970s was finally when the NHL realized that uh, they needed more than six teams to compete. The WHA had recognized that, but uh, seemingly the NHL Board of Governors had uh, come very late to that, uh, that recognition. However, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the transplanting, I guess, of the uh, very white uh, shall we say, historic uh, uh, background of professional hockey uh, transplanted into the uh, the Deep South, the furthest d- Deep South until that point. Um, it, w- it was very, very intriguing. And, and you know, Birmingham had had its uh, taste of WHA hockey. There was the uh, rumor uh, or the, the planned uh, uh, Screaming Eagles down in South Florida with the WHA and, and clearly some other markets that the, the World Hockey Association had thought uh, for sure would be uh, virgin territory. Uh, but none really stuck there. And uh, this is around the time when the NHL, uh, in its uh, expansion wisdom, thought that perhaps that they needed to uh, keep the uh, WHA in check by putting a franchise in the Deep South and in particular Atlanta uh, to, uh, to maintain uh, ownership, if you will, of any success that pro hockey might have. Well, there you go. Uh, that's sort of part of the, uh, the the economics, I guess, and the um, uh, the the sanctity, I guess, of the professional version of the sport. But uh, many, many other issues, sort of uh, underneath the surface there, about race and culture, and uh, frankly, uh, the, the ha- people's uh, uh, taking to the sport of hockey, which was essentially foreign uh, by all uh, by all uh, accounts. Uh, when you sort of juxtapose it with the uh, 
the uh, the dynamics of what was going on at the time in Atlanta and maybe arguably since. Um, Lord uh, knows, again, that uh, pro hockey uh, might have another uh, renaissance, and we'll, we'll discuss that. But uh, we get into the deep um, uh, issues relating to uh, the folly that has been professional hockey largely uh, in Atlanta, uh, not without its many successes, uh, but uh, we don't have a franchise now, and uh, we're going to discuss all of that with our guest this week, our return guest this week, Tom Aiello, uh, as we discuss Atlanta hockey and his new book, uh, courtesy of the uh, University of Tennessee Press. It's called White Ice, Race in the Making of Atlanta Hockey. That is the topic of our conversation. You, too, can get a copy of this book. It's a great read uh, and an uh, intellectual one at that. Uh, Lord, we'd like to uh, indeed uh, keep uh, things on the highbrow as much as we can around here. Uh, you can uh, find a copy of that book wherever good books are found. But of course, we appreciate it if you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, search up this episode number, what is it, 334, I believe, uh, and uh, this uh, conversation with Tom Aiello to come, and uh, you will find a convenient uh, couple of links uh, to this book, White Ice Race in the Making of Atlanta Hockey. And uh, when you do that, you will be whisked away to Amazon, where you get... Um, the book is uh, fast as humanly possible, uh, and of course, we get a couple of shekels or two of uh, referral love, and we appreciate that very much when you do that. All right, let's get uh, right to our conversation. Uh, it's great to have Tom back on the uh, on the podcast, and um, uh, we, as always, we admonish you, we uh, encourage you, we uh, cajole, and, um, and and gently remind you to uh, please, as always, <laughs> enjoy. Why don't you uh, remind our audience, um, you know, as we welcome you back to our microphones, um, what your background is, what your area of study is and where, uh, and uh, maybe a little uh, reminder about Dixie Ball, which is our episode number 244, uh, what that topic was, because I found that intriguing for sure. Absolutely. Well, I am a professor of history and Africana studies at Valdosta State University in Valdosta, Georgia, which is far south Georgia, right by the Florida line. Um, my area of expertise is uh, black history, southern history, and unrelated to this, uh, animal studies and animal history. And um, I have written about Atlanta sports before, in particular, the Hawks, um, in a book called Dixie Ball. I, I've, I've kind of considered this kind of a sequel to that in my head, um, another uh, Atlanta sports book from around the same period. Um, Atlanta ended up um, looking for legitimacy in the Sun Belt after the end of segregation and tried to use professional sports to get it. One of them, one of those efforts was to ultimately bring the Hawks, uh, the NBA's Hawks from St. Louis to Atlanta. Um, and in the process of doing that, though, they were dealing with a league that was predominantly black and a team that was predominantly black, even though it was incredibly successful um, they found that the only way for them to succeed financially in Atlanta was to dismantle that uh, successful black team and replace a lot of those players with white SEC stalwarts that 
weren't quite as good or ready for the NBA, but that their white fan base could get behind. Um, this A similar phenomenon happened in New Orleans, in the ABA. Um, and so Dixie Ball was really about the phenomenon of a black league coming to a recently desegregated um, American South. Here, we're talking a little bit about uh, a, a compensatory project of trying to bring a predominantly white league uh, to kind of leaven a lot of what happened with the NBA move to the South. Yeah, and 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 this uh, this new book obviously is uh, it, there's a there's a parallel in some respects to to the Dixie Ball conversation, but but a complete divergence from it as well, right? I mean, absolutely. It, I think I think rooted in in that sort of commonality uh, at the very least, very base uh, sort of case here uh, is sort of the uh, the the long sort of history that we've sort of de- de- rooted out in our various conversations over the last I don't know how many years we've been doing this silly show. Um, around uh, this uh, this belief this this myth this this certainty uh depending on who you're asking that uh a a city on the come uh that's growing uh perhaps uh, regionally uh attracting new populations and culture and whatnot um sees value and um almost uh coronation if you will of major league status literally and figuratively by bringing in and hosting and 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 housing uh professional sports teams right it's almost the right. uh the under the the understanding that you're not major league until you truly have major league sports and certainly that was very dominant in the 1960s and 1970s in particular um but here we are again for a different sport maybe uh maybe a little background as to how and how hockey is similar and dissimilar in that sort of setup yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you're absolutely right, by the way. And I, I think society plays into that because I think we do think of cities that have major league teams differently than cities that do not. Um, and I think a lot of civic leaders come by those assumptions, honestly, even though those assumptions usually end up doing a lot of damage <laughs> to those to those various cities. Um, but hockey is a very different animal. Um, it is a Canadian game. And even though basketball was invented by a Canadian, it is it is very much an American game. At, you know, the NHL is is founded in the World War One era, but it's 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 an entirely Canadian operation. Uh, eventually, in the 20s, it will slowly move into the United States in Boston and in New York. Um, but it's a very slow move to be sure. They end up, by the time uh, we get to World War II, they had tried teams in places like Detroit and Cleveland. But ultimately, during World War II, the the number of teams gets whittled down. Uh, so many teams collapse in various forms and fashions uh, that ultimately there are six left. That Those are the six that we know as the original six. They actually aren't the original six, but they are the ones that we deem the original six because they're the ones who survived World War II. Um, and so it was a six-team league, and it was a six-team league for two decades. Uh, it was only in Canada, only in Eastern Canada, and only in the American Northeast. It was... Uh, with the exception, I guess, of Detroit, the farthest west that they went, uh, the Red Wings were there. But um, 
it was a very regional game um, and one that was decidedly Canadian. It had little to nothing to do with anyone in the, the, the South. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the, the first time that Atlanta sees hockey, they actually see a, a roller skating version of it um, uh, in the 1930s that comes down on a traveling thing and they do roller skating hockey and people are very interested in that. And then in the 1940s, an ice show comes and they have chimpanzees playing hockey as part of their thing. So the first actual paid hockey that was ever played, ice hockey that was ever played in the deep South was actually played by monkeys. Um, and it was always something that was seen as decidedly foreign in a society that always saw itself as a closed society and always felt threats from outside. Hockey was one of those threats. I mean, it was something that was foreign to them and not really there. Ultimately, though, you're right, with the expansion of teams that really starts with baseball in the 50s, in the post-war period, when they move out west to California, expansion starts to become the norm. The NFL, by this point, gains at least a little bit of momentum and starts to add teams. Um, they actually start that in the 40s. And then, of course, the NBA is growing, too. It's very difficult for a, a professional league to consider itself uh, one of the big leagues if there are literally only six teams and they only play in this relatively small window of space in North America. And so in the 1960s, responding to the financial exigencies that are kind of created by these other sports and the growth of television and things like that, the NHL will finally expand and they will double their number of teams to 12. They will add six new teams. And from that point, it, it becomes kind of a you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube kind of phenomenon where expansion is going to become the vehicle of growth, much to the chagrin, I should say, of a lot of Canadian commentators. Canadians don't really like this very much because inevitably expansion is happening in the United States where all of the major growth markets are. And so you have this weird situation where you have a game that is bound up with the identity of one country that is expanding almost uniformly into another country even though 90% of the players of that game come from Canada. And so Canada is really interpreting a lot of this as both a watering down of the actual game because you're allowing players that wouldn't normally make the cut to be on teams. And they're seeing this very much as a brain drain, as, you know, as all of their talent leaving their own country to go serve the interests of Americans and that is the hue and cry in the 60s when the league is moving to like Buffalo, like literally right across the border from Canada. So, I mean, you can imagine what farther moves are going to do to their assumption about what exactly the growth of hockey means. And so unlike basketball, which was always seen as kind of um, an Americanizing entity, and had always been there in the South, even before the NBA. Hockey was different because hockey was a game that no one had really ever experienced before in the South. And it was going to be a kind of culture shock, I think, that I don't know if everyone was expecting.
Yeah, well, a bunch of things to unpack there. I mean, uh, which to me are all, it's a huge confluence for all this. So, so number one, I mean, look, the NHL, right? I mean, uh, you mentioned uh, all those other major sports, right? They were very late to the game. They were exceedingly conservative, and it wasn't until 1967 that they seemingly recognized so. right, that there absolutely. was topography, but, you know, west of Chicago and south of, you know, I don't know, but Pittsburgh, perhaps, perhaps right? So, right. Um, you know, th- there is sort of a, 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 a pent up, I guess, um, uh, growth opportunity there. And I was all hastened too a couple of years later by the arrival of the World Hockey Association. So just sticking specifically Absolutely. with Hot pro hockey's uh, relative uh, inability or slowness to kind of to grow and to 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 find uh, other pastures. Um, I, the WHA is also interesting, and I think you you, you nibble at this a little bit. Um, there was a franchise in the Deep South, uh, in Birmingham of all places, uh, Eli Gold, oh. the voice of the uh, University of Alabama Crimson right. Tide football team and, and NASCAR guy. Uh, he, he, it was his first real job, uh, growing up in Brooklyn and, uh, you know, fine, but he was like, he was the voice of hockey for that, for that team. And, and I wouldn't call it a raging success, but, um, in some respects, some, some real pioneering efforts in the quote unquote deep South there, there was, um, and I guess this is the other overlap here. This sounds shades of earlier a decade or two around, um, you know the the Washington uh, Redskins, n- then known as right in the, in the NFL, right. right? There was a whole sort of uh, either disbelief that the South could be a market, or in that case, the, the you know the um, let's call him racist owner who who wanted right. the entire South as his quote unquote market. So a, a lot of sort of artificial uh, restraints there. Um, I, I guess there's a, an insight in there somewhere. No, there absolutely is. You're absolutely right. And and those are those are two different points, but I think they're both important. First, you're right. The, um, Birmingham does get a WHA team. And actually, uh, that is not an expansion team. That is a move. Uh, it does not come into the league when the, the World Hockey Association starts. It It is an Ottawa team that ends up moving down there to try to take advantage of that market after um, – the WHA had been around for a while, but you're but you're absolutely right. And they find when they get down there, nobody cares about the game. They just want to see fights. And so the Birmingham Bulls become this notorious kind of gangster team that just just beats hell out of everybody. Kind of like and, the Flyers at the time, but uh, a lesser version, shall we say? It, right, ex- right, exactly. Like the Flyers, except there's a lot of Confederate flags and Dixie being sung at every fight. So. Yes, um, it is that kind of thing. And so, again, that brings a lot of criticism onto why are we putting hockey in the South? They're ruining the game. They're taking away the beauty of it and just making it into a thug sport. Um, A lot of Canadian commentators kind of hate this for that very reason. But you're also right about markets. When the W, I should say, let me just say first that for those who uh, uh, don't know, the same people who created the American Basketball Association, the ABA, to compete with the NBA and ultimately to try to force a merger, much as happened in the early century with the American League in baseball and a little bit prior to this with the AFL in football, the same people who did that with basketball, with the American Basketball Association, with the Nets and the Nuggets and all of those teams, after they had seen success, they decide to try that for the one sport that it hadn't been tried for, hockey. And so they create this World Hockey Association. 
And some of the teams they put uh, are in Canadian markets. I mean, they put teams in in Ottawa. They put teams in Calgary and Edmonton. And they they kind of move Canadian hockey west. They also put teams in kind of virgin markets. One of them, at least initially, was Miami. Um, Screaming Miami Eagles, never, a team never even played, but yes, never even played. But yeah. but they but they had the idea that hey, look, there's this whole section of the country that's never seen hockey. This could be a place where we could actually put a team and succeed. And so they they start this process again with the same goal as they had with the ABA to ultimately force a merger. And eventually they are successful um, in a limited way, in the same way that the ABA was lim- in a limited way successful in getting some teams into the NHL eventually. But um, that organization ultimately challenges the NHL and is really going to push the market for expansion. And you're right, the, the, the Redskins point I think is really good too. Everybody is vying for a virgin market. And once you get it, you don't want any competition there. We really see this at the same time that Atlanta's getting hockey as we see this in New York. Because when Atlanta ultimately does get an NHL team, the other place to get one is going to be Long Island. I mean, it's going to be the creation of the Islanders at the same time. And the reason they do that, even though they have the Rangers, is specifically because the WHA puts a team in New York. And so the NHL is directly trying to compete with this market, and that actually goes to federal court in a massive antitrust lawsuit that costs both sides millions of dollars in early 1970s money to to try to decide whether or not turf actually matters in these kinds of things. And so when people looked to the South, they saw... Well, they saw race, and certainly that's a part of this story to be sure. But they knew that unlike basketball and unlike the Braves and unlike the Falcons, that they had a team that could come down there that was going to be entirely white, that was not going to step on any racial toes, that white people would accept, and it was a virgin market. And if they could be could kind of plant their flag there, that would be a really big deal. The Birmingham Bulls were significant, but by the time that they got there, the South had had minor league hockey. And the NHL was desperate to try to paint the WHA as a minor league organization, that this that the NHL was going to be something fundamentally different, that it was going to be, it's far more big time and everything else. And so their idea was you get the most important Southern city, which is Atlanta, even though it has not proven to be a good sports market, you still, you get that city, which has far more prestige than Birmingham and you win the region and you become kind of the, the the redskins of the region. You you own the market, just like the Braves still do uh, in the South. Yeah, look, I, I was also uh, uh, kind of circling around this. Uh, I think it's important to remember, too, that in the late 60s, right, is when, you know, Atlanta really kind of uh, shed its uh, sort of regional skin, shall we say, uh, at right. least on the pro uh, sports landscape, because the, the went from like zero to 100 in, in a very short period of time. With the arrival of the relocated Braves, uh, the standing up of, a, of a, an expansion franchise in the Falcons and the NFL, um, you had the, even the Atlanta Chiefs, uh, you know, right. probably 
probably given more uh, uh, love and admiration in in retrospect than the, the actual time, but it was still a pro, another pro team and and the Hawks, right, uh, who, who had, had been there for a, a little bit too. So the only thing that was glaringly missing uh, as, as the 1970s got going, right, was this professional hockey thing. And therein lies sort of the background that we just kind of talked about. So it, it just seemed like a natural... Um, I don't wouldn't call it a fit, but a natural um, missing link, I guess, for uh, a, a city that was truly trying to kind of round out its professional cred. Absolutely. And, you know, that's the cultural side of it. The cultural side of it is that we want this to be able to show everybody that we are ultimately major. We have all four sports. The economic side of it is if the Hawks want their new arena built, because originally they were playing in Georgia Tech's Alexander Memorial Coliseum because we didn't have an arena here. And to get the arena built, you have to figure out ways to monetize that um, more than 40 days a year, which is all NBA teams will be using it for. And so the argument was we not only need a hockey team for our cultural kind of expansion, but to make this feasible financially for downtown Atlanta, we need to fill 40 more dates in that arena. And so the NHL was seen at, was sold at the time to the city council at the board of aldermen as part of the long-term plan for this arena to convince them to help with funding um, because ultimately it was hockey that would help the arena pay for itself. So this now leads into, all right. So I think all that background, right. Just seems like, okay, this sounds inevitable. This sounds like it's like you said, virgin territory. There are many confluent reasons why this uh, makes a lot of sense, at least on paper. Um, the Flames' arrival in, what was it, 1974? Mm -hmm. um, but how, why, and and why six years? It only took six years for them to get out of town uh, or, uh, or so. Um and I, you know, I might be putting the cart before the horse here, but let me just let me Go just ahead. say at the at the end of this, I just want to make sure we everybody knows that the Atlanta Flames actually did very well in Atlanta. Um, yeah, they made the playoffs a couple of times. Sure, for sure. They only they they had two losing seasons, their first two seasons, and they never had a losing season again. Um, they outsold many other NHL teams uh, throughout that entire run. The, the Flames were kind of parodied after the fact as being a complete flop in Atlanta. It turns out they were not a complete flop. Um, they, they didn't do as well as maybe they should have financially, and they made a lot of mistakes along the way. Uh, but, but they weren't the failure that we think of them as now. But getting them to Atlanta was an is an interesting story. Um, and the most important player in that story is actually the Penguins. The Penguins um, have long been, and I think all hockey fans listening will know, have long been a just a financial failure all the way across the board. They have been run by a variety of people who have never really known what they're doing. Even when the Penguins have been great, um, historically speaking, um, until Lemieux came in, and really helped solidify ownership, post-playing Lemieux, came in and helped solidify ownership, the Penguins were always in dire straits. And in the early 1970s, they were declaring bankruptcy. 
for the second of what would become three times. And they were thinking about moving and Clarence Campbell, the um, commissioner of the NHL, wouldn't let them. He said, and this, this is going to sound ironic for a league that has so many teams that have moved in our lifetimes. He said, we are not a league that moves teams. Those other leagues move teams. We have never done it and we never will. You're not allowed to move. I, I, wish going, I, I wish I had a recording of that, right? I know. It's crazy. I mean, that this was their stand for so long and now they are known more for moving than any other. But so he says you can't move. Um, and ultimately, they start looking for new people to buy the team. Nobody can afford it. And so, okay, so that's what's going on in Pittsburgh. Meanwhile, in Atlanta, they are being courted first by the WHA, who wants to put a franchise there. And they're thinking about it. Um, because even though they want the NHL, the benefit of going to the WHA would have been that all of the teams would have been new which gives you a better chance to win. And they assumed that winning was going to help them draw. And so if you go to the WHA, it might not have the status of the NHL, but you are more likely to succeed on the ice than you would be if you were an expansion franchise in a league that's been around since the 19-teens. But they really wanted the NHL. And so Tom Cousins, the guy who was financing the building of what would become the Omni in Atlanta, the stadium, and who was the technical owner of the Hawks, works out a deal with the NHL. He floats a $500,000 loan to a group, an investment group, who will end up buying the Penguins, saving them from bankruptcy. He won't have any part in the Penguins, but he will end up funding the survival of the Penguins and in return to help the NHL save face by floating them this loan, not only will he make money off the interest from the loan, but the NHL will bump Atlanta up above all the other cities applying for potential um, expansion and will put them first in line. That becomes the big sell. And so ultimately in 1972, um, the the league decides to expand, again, directly in response to WHA expansion and the, the, the threat that they experienced from that. And they decide to add two new teams. They add one in Long Island, uh, the Islanders, to compete with the WHA. And then they give one to Atlanta, largely as a thank you for saving uh, the Pittsburgh franchise. And so Atlanta gets its team. They have this team and... They had been hoping for that. They had been talking about it for years. And now they didn't exactly know what to do with it. Like, great, we have this. Now what? Certainly they were excited about the fact that there was going to be a new sport. But new didn't necessarily mean attendance, as we found out with the Chiefs. Um, soccer was new, too. And people tended not to care. But this would be different because they knew that all the players were going to be white, which mattered in Atlanta in the early 1970s, especially when considering that part of that arena was specifically sold as being a quote-unquote downtown revitalization project, which is always racially coded whenever you say anything like that. And so they go about trying to uh, put a team together 
And uh, they end up hiring uh, uh, Boom Boom Joffreon, uh, one of the greatest NHL players of all time, uh, a failed coach, but but a real legend in the game. But of course, one that no one in Atlanta had ever heard of. He wasn't famous there. He was somebody that nobody had ever heard of. Um, and he spoke, of course, with a thick French-Canadian accent. And he comes down. Luckily, um, he is able to overcome a lot of those things because of his personality. He becomes a, a star in the city. And then they go about looking for players. They have an expansion draft. They they end up taking several players that end up being kind of Atlanta Flames legends. Dan uh, Borchard in particular, the goalie, who's actually their second goalie taken. Phil Meyer was the other one. Uh, yeah, the, uh, Dan Bouchard, a, a former guest of ours, uh, a very enlightening yeah. conversation, and and especially it's, as that team crumbled uh, near the still, end. Still very much devoted to, you know, that time, uh, always defends, in all of his interviews, defends the Flames as being a viable prospect in Atlanta. Um, they, all, they also got Phil Meyer, who was uh, Ken Dryden's backup, and knew that he would never see the ice in Montreal because Montreal was just, you know, the Yankees. And so it gave him a, a chance to play as well. They So they got some players in that, but the, the player that they really wanted, the player that they focused everything around was in the rookie draft when they wanted Jacques Richard, um, known as Rocket Richard. He looked almost exactly like Pete Maravich. He had a similar profile. Every, and they were looking for the Pete Maravich of hockey because Pete Maravich sold tickets to the Hawks. That was their big get. And they wanted that for um, the, the Flames. And they end up getting Rocket Richard and uh, wooing him away from the WHA because the WHA had a team uh, in Quebec City and um, he was from Quebec City. So... Uh, he they were able to woo him away with NHL kind of money and they they built this this team the big problem they ran into is that it's nice to have players it's nice to have a coach it's nice to get the actual uh, mechanics of actually playing in place but you also have to have you know kind of butts in seats and what they ended up doing was selling hockey as an upscale event um, they promoted an ice age in Atlanta and marketed themselves to wealthy white suburbanites. And I mean, people dressed up to go to games because they'd never been to them before. There were people in tuxedos in, in, in the stands at the Omni to go watch hockey. Uh, they were serving champagne. I mean, it was, they were trying to make this a decidedly upper class thing, which of course in Atlanta means a decidedly white thing, so that the faces in the stands would all match the faces on the ice, even though they were right in the middle of an area that was 90% black. And so that ends up becoming their big problem. There's only so much high dollar money in Atlanta that's willing to go into town, into what they call a quote unquote bad part of town, which really just means black and go to see these hockey games and you know it season tickets dwindle relatively quickly year by year even though attendance itself stays relatively stable season tickets which is kind of how you make all your financial planning um dwindle every year because of that. <laughs>
All right, what's this? Royal Retros. All right, longtime fans of this show may remember a little site that we used to promote the heck out of called 503 Sports. Well, not only are they still around, they are now known as Royal Retros. RoyalRetros.com, the king of throwbacks. And like the name implies, the highest quality jerseys and hats and apparel and all kinds of stuff related to various teams and leagues and situations that we love to obsess about here on this show. And I'm talking about getting jerseys with your name and number on the back of them, customized to your liking for the WHA or or old NHL hockey teams that may not exist anymore. Uh, Perhaps it's a federal league team from way back or a Negro league team. Maybe you're just enamored with the various football leagues of the past, like the Arena League or the All-American Football Conference or the original UFL, United Football League. Yes, you can get all of those teams uh, in all kinds of colors, away jerseys, home jerseys. You want to put your name on them. You want to make sure you got the official patch on the side. All of those things and more at RoyalRetros.com. And I'm not kidding, friends. You go there. You want to find that Cleveland Barons jersey to wear and show. Hey, you're maybe a Colorado Avalanche uh, fan and you want to represent the Quebec Nordiques from where they came. Uh, in the arena to show your heritage and your love and knowledge of the history of that franchise, you can do that and more. And I'm talking across football and basketball and baseball and hockey and you name it, all kinds of great stuff for you to find and buy and purchase and wear proudly from Royal Retros. That's RoyalRetros.com. And of course, we have a promo code for you. We want to save you money from all these great things. Uh, and here's that code. It's SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, promo code SEATS for all of your purchases at RoyalRetros.com. Check them out. You'll be glad you did. We love them. And our friend Destin Alameda there out in Portland, Oregon, we appreciate his and their sponsorship of this show. And now back to our conversation. Can you also talk about the Omni though? Because that's also important to the, the conversation because it was, it was, I, I, I think both before and after the Turner organization kind of uh, became the, 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 the joint owner, it was almost a, a, a symbiotic and, or I guess maybe forced parallel sales proposition between these two teams, at least. Um, Absolutely. Uh, for, for, and the building and the building was brand new in 72 uh, conveniently when uh, the Hawks and the Flames were kind of getting their sea legs. It was. And it was a project specifically of Tom Cousins, who owned the Hawks, who was who made all of his money in construction, who really wooed the Hawks there partially out of some kind of civic pride, but mostly because he wanted the contract to build an arena. And so the Flames were another part of that. And, and so he really saw all of this through the lens of how I can build downtown and make money off of that property. And they built a hotel right next to it. And uh, ultimately when he falls out, Ted Turner will come in and do the exact same thing, buying the hotel, creating CNN center and all that stuff downtown. So yes, the Omni is a very much a part of that. And there was a synergy and ownership ownership between the Hawks and the flames was different, but it had several of the same people on each board. And all of those people were on the board of the Omni. So three separate groups, but all of them were incestuous in, in a very real way. And all of them saw the success of the other as very much pertaining to their own. 
The one interesting thing about that ownership group, of course, is that the Flames ownership uh, included uh, among uh, among other people was a guy named Herman Russell. Um, Herman Russell was another construction guy, a uh, very wealthy Atlanta um, businessman who was in construction and who Tom Cousins recruited to be part of the Flames ownership group. And that is unique because Herman Russell was black. And so he becomes uh, one of the first black professional sports owners in a sport that is almost entirely white in a city that is majority black and which black fans are not attending. They actually have black ownership. He was not on the board of uh, the Hawks, but he was on the board of the Flames and the Omni because he was part of the construction people who ended up building that building. And that building becomes significant in Atlanta. I mean, the goal was to make the Omni the Madison Square Garden of the South, um, not only with the Hawks and Flames, but also to host um, boxing, professional wrestling, a lot of things like that. It was it was designed to be kind of a destination venue for so many. And of course, again, like we see in so many other cities, the, the watchword was always, this will revitalize downtown, quote unquote, which means this will hopefully bring white residents back into the city. And of course it doesn't. Um, it just brings them in you know, for a few hours at night, and then they leave again, not spending any money in the downtown businesses that are there. But that is the plan. And the Omni is seen as the center of all of that. You can't get the Omni without the flames. And you can't sustain any of that without playing to that white suburban audience that you're trying to convince to come in. Uh, and I aired earlier by saying the 74, it was 72 when the Flames started. They lasted eight seasons, not six. But um, I, I'm, guess, I'm just curious about that synergy in both sets of ownerships. Um, what, I, there was, a this, I, how can I best describe it? A divergence, perhaps, between the Hawks, quote unquote, success and that of the Flames. I mean, they, they might have been, quote unquote, successful for different reasons, um, right. But it's pretty clear by the end of the decade, they were kind of, I mean, the Flames literally were leaving town. The, the Hawks obviously still remain to this day. So the Hawks still remain. Yeah. Ho hockey versus basketball, I guess, is the question sort of embedded in there. In right. relation so, to Atlanta. Right. And so there are, there are a couple of answers to that. First, the Hawks could fit more people in uh, for configuration for basketball. Um, but more than that, more people were familiar with basketball. They didn't have to convince anybody of that. And so their attendance was always relatively small, but it was consistent. Whereas the Flames could have sold out buildings one night and then a few thousand the next. The real reason that the Flames end up leaving and the Hawks end up staying is because Cousins was looking to having some financial problems in the late 1970s and was looking to offload one of those teams as a way to recoup some bad investments. And while there wasn't really a burgeoning market for an NBA franchise, there were Canadian teams, uh, Canadian cities chomping at the bit to get um, an NHL franchise. 
And it was just easier for him to offload uh, the Flames than it was the Hawks. And because everyone in Atlanta knew basketball, because Georgia Tech and UGA played basketball, because basketball was just part of kind of the American cultural consciousness or the Southern cultural consciousness in a way that hockey wasn't. And because hockey had available markets where people were willing to overpay for a, a relatively more of a franchise, the Flames were the ones that ultimately left. And of course, they went to Calgary, uh, which openly embraced them. Calgary, who had been very much a part of the WHA, had two separate teams uh, in the WHA uh, and ultimately were, were desperate to have uh, the Flames get there. And of course, the Flames, you know, they, they leave in 80 and they never have to never have to play to 5,000 fans again because uh, Calgary embraces them in a way that Atlanta never ap uh, actually could. So in your framing, what, what was the... Um... You know, what was the postmortem on the Flames uh, after 1980? I mean, was it financial? Was it the sport just doesn't didn't click? Were there other factors in the process that you're 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 hinting at the the downtown nature, the 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 right. revitalization, if you will, of downtown and, and all those sort of undercurrents and 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 socially, uh, maybe demographically, too. Uh, sports in general, uh, economy, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, uh, the Flames advertised to the wrong market, first of all. They they tried to make this an upper-class sport in a region, in an area of town where no upper-class people lived. Um, for all the kind of moderate success, I guess I'll say, that they had on the ice and in the, at the box office, they did nothing to revitalized downtown or to make it more of a destination for people they did not we did not see a reverse influx of white flight back into the city none of that happened um and so on those counts i'd say they were uh, a failure but for those who supported them I mean, there was a real hue and cry when they left. I mean, Atlanta gets a minor league team very quickly after that because of kind of the anger that comes out after the Flames leave. I think I think a lot of the assumption was, well, I'm not going to go, but they're still my team. And when they leave, then you start getting mad. And that certainly happens. And so what we end up seeing is an ownership group that sees an opportunity to bring an all-white team to the Deep South, assuming that race would end up making up for foreignness. When in reality, foreignness except the foreignness of the game, not necessarily the players, but of the game, is going to end up leaving a lot of people relatively apathetic. Remember, this is uh, the same market that is relatively apathetic about the Hawks, about the Braves, um, about the Falcons. Uh, you know, Atlanta has always been a horrible sports city. Um, even though, you know, even though my teams are there, I, you know, I am perfectly willing to admit it's always been a horrible sports city. Uh, the, the Flames were a victim of that, but the Braves don't leave. 
you know, the, the, the Hawks don't leave. And so what we end up seeing is after the move happens, popular response is perfidy on the parts of the owners. The NHL screwed us over. This is all terrible. When in reality, the relatively lackluster support for the team and the financial problems faced by Tom Cousins ended up forcing a move. Could the Flames have survived in Atlanta? Absolutely they could have, in the same way that the Hawks have survived in Atlanta. But would the Flames have won the Stanley Cup in the 90s like they did in Calgary? Probably not. Would they have gone to the Stanley Cup final three times? Probably not. They didn't have that kind of money and that kind of support thrown into them. And so they would have looked like a lot of Atlanta teams, kind of treading water and uh, kind of being middle of the pack, kind of also rans. Um, but yeah, I think they very much could have stayed and succeeded. But when you combine kind of those kind of demographic failures with financial trouble of ownership and the need to recruit lost investment, it almost becomes a fait accompli. So why again then does the NHL <laughs> entertain, right? Uh, now, I, now I, I think I know a little bit about some of, of this, right? Some of it's, it's from, from the framing of, of your of your narrative, but also look at 1999 when the Thrashers uh, make Eight. their debut in the NHL. The there's a new arena, and and I think you know the Hawks obviously moved there too. Um, I, I think you know we nibble our, around this right arena and real estate right uh, is actually a growing part, and certainly is a very viable or or gigantic part today of. Oh of economics, right? It's almost like the building first and then let's try to figure out a, or if you're if you're a team in a market, why share it with another when you can own all the revenue streams of such? Right now, this is a little earlier this 1999 part of the conversation, but I I'm guessing and my my belief is that the the the, the now Phillips Arena was very or State Farm Arena now was actually part of very much part of of one of the major reasons for the thrashers showing up. Oh, of course, just like the Omni. I mean, you know, all professional sports since the 1950s, professional sports is just a real estate market. And that is certainly the way this goes here. Uh, Tom Cousins is is alive, but he is no longer part of this. Now it all becomes Ted Turner. And Ted Turner, who now owns the Hawks and wants to build this new arena, um, this story gets complicated less by race and more by competition. The uh, Atlanta had a minor league team, the Atlanta Knights, that ended up leaving and going to, of all places, Quebec City. And the ownership that sent them away still liked Atlanta. They just got a better offer and decided to go. And they promised that they were going to leave but that they were going to try to use their influence to get Atlanta another NHL team because they saw Atlanta as a viable NHL market. And so they end up negotiating with Cobb County, which is outside of Atlanta proper, which is where, uh, for, for our modern listeners, where the Braves play now, uh, a wealthy uh, white suburban county just north of Atlanta. And they were going, Cobb County was going to build a hockey arena for an NHL team. 
uh, that would be partially owned by the former Atlanta Knights ownership group, which was now in Quebec City. Ted Turner did not like this plan at all. And Ted Turner in the 1990s ran Atlanta, especially Atlanta sports. And he wanted a new arena to replace the Omni. And again, just like with the building of the Omni, he knows that if you're going to build a new arena, you need dates besides the 42 that the NBA is going to give you. And so he makes his own play for an NHL team, undercuts uh, the Quebec group, and tries to get a team that could play in his arena which would literally be, you know, it's a city arena, but it is literally attached to CNN Center. Um, I mean, you enter the building through the CNN Center. I mean, so, I mean, it is very much a Ted Turner property. And he wanted that team to be part of his umbrella of properties along with um, the Hawks and the Braves and WCW. Uh, uh, for non-wrestling people, that's the World Championship Wrestling, uh, the other thing he owned, the competitor at that time of the WWE. And so uh, he goes to the NHL, uses his clout, and is able to kind of outbid the group from Cobb County, uses that coup to convince the Board of Aldermen to fund Phillips Arena, which later changes its name, and brings in the Thrashers. Um, the Thrasher, actually, you know, when the Flames came in, they had a uh, a naming contest to name the team. Flames is what ended up winning. It's a, it's a Civil War reference to uh, the burning of Atlanta by William Tecumseh Sherman. It's still, to this day, the Calgary Flames are the, the, the only professional sports team to have a Confederate name, uh, and yet they are in Calgary, Canada. It's very bizarre. It's um, probably, probably right up there, although not not with the Confederate uh, link, uh, with the Utah Jazz uh, right. in terms of incong incongruity with their new location, but exactly. I digress. Exactly. That, that's a crazy one, too. You know, there's so many there's so many Confederate names. The Lakers is another one, L.A. Lakers, right? College teams in the, in the South. Um, uh, but the Flames were the only pro sports team to have a Civil War name attached to them, and then they leave. And you're right. I mean, those the, those leavings when you don't change the name always becomes bizarre, like the Lakers or the Flames or the Jazz. But Thrasher had come in second in that in that vote. The Thrasher, I should say, is the Georgia State bird. And um, when Ted got his team, he wasn't going to do a naming contest because he was Ted Turner. He was going to name them himself. And he very much wanted a bird name because he already had the Hawks and there was already the Falcons and he wanted everybody to have a bird name. And so he decided it was going to be the Thrashers against a lot of protests. People didn't like it. They thought the Thrasher was too small of a bird. Uh, they didn't think it was tough enough. But, you know, Ted gets his way and we get the Thrashers. And ultimately, they will run into similar kinds of problems, just like the just like the Flames end up kind of selling out in their opening draft uh, to get uh, Rocket Richard, who ends up not becoming the ultimate superstar they thought he was going to be. They, the, the Thrasher did the same thing. They end up leveraging everything to get the number one pick 
And with the number one pick, they take Patrick Steffen. Vancouver has the second and third picks because of some trades and because of what the Thrashers were giving away. And with the second and third pick of that draft, Vancouver takes the Sedin brothers. Um, and so uh, the Thrashers are kind of beset with the same problems. You know, they miss out on the, the two surefire Hall of Famers in that draft, even though they had the first pick. Um, uh, and unlike the Flames, they don't win. Um, they they don't have that excuse. I mean, the, the Thrashers were um, kind of perennially bad. And their struggles had less to do with race and marketing and more with failure. What's interesting is that by the time the Thrashers come around, Hartford had left and gone to North Carolina. Tampa had gotten its franchise with the Lightning. Nashville had gotten the Predators. And those franchises have done very well. They have succeeded. Uh, fans attend those games. Those games tend to be, if not sellouts, relatively high on the list of average fan attendance in the NHL every single season. The one exception of that would be uh, the Panthers uh, in Miami who have very poor attendance. Uh, but those other three kind of core Southern hockey franchises now do incredibly well. Um, but they do well largely because they have been good. And fans have seen success. They don't see that in Atlanta. And Atlanta is, I mean, Atlanta couldn't sell out uh, the Braves stadium when the Braves were going to the World Series every year in the 90s. So, I mean, Atlanta has always kind of generally had this problem. And ultimately, um, the Thrashers will end up leaving as well. And they will go also to Western Canada. They will go to Winnipeg. And they, unlike the Flames, will rename themselves uh, to their former NHL team name, the Jets. And so yeah, both the, Flames, the, Win the Winnipeg Thrashers kind of has a ring to it. Winni the Winnipeg Thrashers uh, would not have been a see, unlike so Calgary had the Broncos and they had another hockey team in the WHA, but uh, they didn't really have kind of the legacy of major league hockey that Winnipeg did before the Jets absconded from them. So they felt like they really couldn't change the name. Winnipeg really just wanted the Jets back. And so, so yeah, so now uh, the Flames and the Jets, both of Atlanta's teams uh, are doing, not counting this year, which is not going so great for the Flames, uh, are doing relatively well um, and succeeding far outside of uh, the Atlanta market. You know, All right. I, so, I, look, yeah, let me ask you one sort of other thing, and then so maybe we can cul-de-sac this because uh, yeah. I, I want to sort of wind up and, and get your opinions about what next. Because it's interesting, the late '90s, right around this time, that Atlanta, from a from a city and sports perspective, right, had a whole new uh, level of energy around it. Obviously, the '96 uh, Olympics and and Turner Field, even it, its its very existence uh, yeah. was, uh, I think, quite smartly. 
conjoined at the hip as being part of the uh, the Olympic Stadium at the mm-hmm. time, and then a repurposed kind of a process uh, for that stadium. But as the years went on, right, and maybe this is sort of where this thematically hooks right back up to what you were talking about earlier. Um, the lament uh, over the years uh, afterwards, right, was that to your point, right, people were coming into the games uh, from other places. Uh, it was a, still a relatively poor uh, area or neighborhoods nearby. Uh, there wasn't a lot of stickiness, if you will, to to those crowds that were coming. And frankly, the traffic was getting worse uh, yeah. in that people were just not willing to to make and sacrifice all that time uh, to go down into the into downtown to go to go watch a game. So it's interesting right now, the truest park thing, right? Literally domiciling in the suburbs, building the right. battery and, and, and its own, you know, if you will, a business like amusement park nearby or around it. Um, uh, it's, it's, so I guess the question in there is number one, does, is that sort of the future for Atlanta sports is the downtown becoming less attractive because of the dynamics. And and second, I, I, it is hard to avoid the example that has been set by the, um, the Braves with their, uh, real estate play, because literally you see this every week when a new stadium is either floated or proposed or put in front of voters now that it has to be all about not only the stadium, but the revenue opportunities of the real estate in and around the immediate vicinity, like the Atlanta project, right? Um, What have we created here? What does that mean for Atlanta? And does that mean that hockey can come back? I'm going to guess it would probably be more of a suburban opportunity given all of those dynamics if it were to come right yeah i mean listen if 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 chicago doesn't think soldier field is is sanctified enough to keep then atlanta is doomed i mean because if if that doesn't work nothing will if chicago if the bears are going to move out to the suburbs so um you're right um and i hate that the braves moved um i don't like it uh, partially for selfish reasons, because it was easier for me to get to the old park at Turner Field, but also because they had promised a MARTA stop. So one of the other problems is that a lot of these cities have decent public transportation. Atlanta does not. Atlanta is a driving city entirely. It has very few public transportation stops. It does not have any kind of integrated infrastructure like that. That, too, has always been stymied by racial concerns. Um, because white taxpayers do not want to pay for a system that they see as largely dominated by black riders. And so there has never been a MARTA stop that has moved out to Cobb County. And so it makes it impossible for uh, working class people in Atlanta to actually go to Braves games anymore. It's a problem, but it's the same problem Chicago is going to face when they move the Bears. It's the same problem that a lot of these places are going to face. The, the, the thing is, though, none of them are going to see it as problems, because as you said, all they're worried about is monetizing real estate dollars. And that is what sports has become. It has become less a um, a function of local loyalty and more a TV show. And so as long as you can solidify your local market by making revenue streams off of real estate, the rest of your money is all going to come from TV and you don't really need to worry specifically about anything else. There has been, over the last two years, ever since the pandemic, really, 
um, there has been talk both in Atlanta and in broader kind of kind of hockey circles about the possibility of the NHL expanding again. And that if they did, Atlanta would be on the list. Um, I don't know if that is ever going to happen. I feel like if you've been burned twice, I, it seems crazy to me that the NHL would want to try that again. Uh, but uh, to, to be to be fair, I am somebody who thought that hockey would never work in Phoenix. And so I... Um, well, careful. I wouldn't use that as your example because I'm not so sure it's going to finally ultimately no, still true. succeed there. <laughs> that might be about... They've lasted longer than any of Atlanta's teams, but you're right. That might not be a good example. Um, so I, I don't... But, 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 but I mean, to your point, maybe. I mean, Atlanta, though, is still probably the biggest uh, market that that the NHL really hasn't been able to fully right. uh, colonize. Yeah. I mean, there's there clearly some other markets. I mean, the Charlottes of the world, you know, et cetera. But I, but as far as major, I don't know, it seems obvious from a business perspective, right? Maybe not taking into account most of what we've talked about for the last 50 and, minutes. And, you know, when the Thrashers came around too, we were in a burgeoning period of cable sports television, wherein, the Fox regional networks were competing with Turner regional networks to try to get um, coverage of local sports. The NHL had a contract with the Fox regional networks to show all the games, whereas if Turner was creating his team, he wasn't going to use Fox because he was going to use Turner South or Turner Sports or one of those, one of his many kind of sports networks that eventually all get folded into to TBS and TNT, which now have tons of sports. Um, that isn't, that kind of isn't, a, isn't a problem anymore. Now Turner has seeded a lot of that ground. He doesn't do regional, uh, the company, I should say, doesn't do regional markets anymore. They funnel all of their sports through their two major networks. Um, and so that wouldn't be a problem anymore. I think there is kind of a, a way clearing for revenue streams that weren't there previously. I hesitate to think that they might move to somewhere like Cobb County because normally where we see that suburban development um, is in the outdoor sports, is in football and baseball. Um, the one kind of real exception that has been pseudo successful I think has been the palace at Auburn Hills outside of Detroit. But even there you have clamoring to bring uh, the Pistons back into the city and they have public transportation, whereas Atlanta does not. Um, but you're right. I, I think the, the two arguments are going to be a, now that State Farm has taken over from Phillips, now that we have an American company sponsoring the arena instead of a Dutch company, we need to fill more dates. We need to be more circumspect about how we, we monetize Phillips Arena. And B, white people are going to go to these games, white people who have money, they are in Cobb County. That is why the Braves left. We need to go build in Cobb County. And I don't know what's going to happen, but if that is the argument, and that is the fight that's going to take place, then it appears that a third NHL attempt in Atlanta will, well, I don't know how it'll go, but it, it would end up starting with behind the exact same eight balls that the Flames and the Thrashers did. And that is not a recipe for success.
Well, that, that's interesting. I mean, a lot of that it, it hangs on the sort of economic arguments, right? And I think right. not too dissimilar maybe to the, the the ideation of the Thrashers, kind of the same, you know, the idea of the NHL and, and expansion and relocation and that kind of stuff. And and look, we, we have seen a huge inflation, uh, literally and figuratively, in pro sports valuations and investment and private equity and all that kind of stuff. And I have right. I have just lamented for weeks and weeks and months and months now uh, you know, I we might be nearing peak sports. I, I macroeconomics notwithstanding, and, and hard to sort of predict. But um, you know, we're, we're thirty teams in Major League Soccer for all for for Pete's right. sake. I mean, I I don't know how much more. And and given the tenuous nature of television and that revenue flow and stream, uh, the you know the inflation literally uh, digging the middle class and and then some and 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 making the average game. Uh, very unaffordable or unattainable to the average fan without some kind of subsidy or or, or corporate perk or something like that. I, I don't, you know, um, I'm not Putting so games sure. games on streaming services where people yeah. have to pay to watch, well, essentially no, and, making but, them pay-per-views. Yeah, and that and that those those streaming services, by the way, are, are nowhere near the similar economics that that regional sports networks and, and other forms of television have historically right. propped up. So I, I I guess we could argue about the economic part. Let me ask you the, ask you this though. Taking that aside and assuming that, do you think Atlanta culturally is ready to 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 take another stab at hockey? Let's assume it's in this, if you will, white you know suburban enclave that feels more economically right. compatible and all that kind of stuff. And I, I I say that you know as plainly as possible, right? But I guess what I'm trying to get at is, um, is even hockey a thing? I mean, you know, you mentioned. You know, Sunrise, Florida, where the Panthers play, which is in not even suburban Fort Lauderdale, not even my close right. to Miami. Uh, we we've and seen what's going on in Phoenix, and and it, it it's not an easy graft into these uh, warmer weather markets and or non-native, shall we say? Do do you think it's even a viable thing, or does it not matter? It's just big sports, and and where there's money and opportunity and a and a, and a vacuum, they should right. take it. We're just we're, we're just land to colonize, right? Um, I think there's I think there are two possible answers to that question. The first is that the the first answer, the argument for no, this will never work in Atlanta is because history shows that it hasn't, but also because, you know, I closed the book in 2019 where the NHL had their fifth heritage classic. And it was significant because it was the flames versus the Jets. I mean, it was the two Atlanta teams playing in Regina about uh, in Saskatchewan, about halfway between those two markets, five hours away from each and a sold out stadium. The two Atlanta teams playing each other in an outdoor stadium in front of more people that had ever seen them play. And it was hockey night in Canada. It was, you know, on millions of homes all across the north and nobody watched it in Atlanta. Atlanta was like the, I think like 60th or 70th market for that game. <laughs> I mean, just nothing, nothing. Uh, nobody cared. Nobody watched. It wasn't even reported on in the constitution, uh, the Atlanta newspaper. And so that makes me think that this really wouldn't work. I will say that Atlanta interest in hockey does go up when Carolina and Nashville are doing well, um, there is increased interest when Southern teams 
tend to do better, not counting Tampa, uh, which is a little bit farther away. But Nashville and and Raleigh, their success tends to make Atlanta's market go up a little bit on television. At the same time, though, television ratings don't equate to, you know, putting an ass every 18 inches, which is what you have to do to keep that team, you know, to, to keep uh, to keep it in the market. I really I really don't have a lot of hope for it, even though I'd love to have it here. I don't have a lot of hope for it. The counter argument, I think, is uh, United. For all of the failure of Atlanta to get behind its sports teams and to even fill up the Braves stadium when the Braves are doing well and all of those kinds of things, the one game that Atlanta really has gotten behind and has led attendance in every year um, has been MLS. You know, uh, all of the largest crowds in MLS history are in Atlanta. Atlanta averages a greater attendance than all but three or four of the Premier League. Um, and we're only good sometimes. You know, we're not even all that great. And so if people are willing to get behind United, it seems like, and I think that's where a lot of the hockey talk is coming from because of the surprise attendance success and the monetary success of United which does not play in the suburbs, which plays downtown. Um, I, I think- Yeah, I, I think it's because it's more of a-, a lot of talk. Yeah, well, yeah, well, it's, it's more of a history of, I guess, being more of a, 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 a middle-class sport of the people, so to speak. Now, I, frankly, it's clearly going in, in, a, in a money direction at MLS, sure. For, uh, but I, there at least is that culture, I guess, of soccer from out from right. And on top forces. of that- you're absolutely right. It's it's a it's a foreign game to most people in the South, but but you're right. It doesn't take any money to play. It's like basketball. All you need is a ball, and everybody gets a chance to play. It's a democratic game, like basketball. Whereas baseball, football, and hockey, you need to have money. You need to be able to buy a lot of equipment, and so people can go watch soccer because they go and they play soccer. People can go watch hockey, but they're always going to see it as something interesting and exotic. There isn't going to be a movement in and around Atlanta to create local hockey clubs and um, uh, to develop a lot of the kind of minor league teams around Georgia into their feeders. All that kind of stuff will never happen. And so you're right. There is a democracy uh and a de democratic element to soccer and basketball that, that hockey just doesn't have because it's expensive. Uh, and it's always going to be seen as an exotic, as exotic in a place where when the Stanley Cup final is going on, it's 110 degrees. No, I, I think you outlined it. I mean, look, I, I think it, um, like a lot of things, things are different this time around. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the economic issues. Certainly the the league is looking to kind of maybe find its last market, so to speak. There's clearly a few that could that could move. Um, but I also think too, you mentioned the regionality of, um, of some of those teams that are relatively close to the Atlanta market when they tend to be doing well, uh, there tends to be a little bit more interest. And I think frankly, the, the, uh, I think it, it, it took everybody by surprise, just how successful 
uh, Atlanta United became so quickly, um, right. you know, that it's, you know, from an, and, and frankly, just how the suburbs have been really good to the Braves, um, mm-hmm. at least financially and becoming the model for everybody else in around the country to do the same thing. I don't know. That seems like that seems like a fairly lower risk economic proposition to give right. it the old, you know, third, third try. All the other reasons that we just talked about over the last hour or so arguably are, you know, should be in the room and be very seriously considered because, you know, it's not just money that makes this stuff work or not. And I think the one other difference is that if Atlanta were ever to be part of the NHL again, they would be the recipient of a franchise that moved from somewhere else. Whereas the last two times they tried it, they were going to be expansion teams and the league was kind of growing. I don't think the NHL thinks it needs more teams. I think it needs new markets. And so they wouldn't be playing from scratch the way they had been the last two times. And that too uh, might augur well uh, for some kind of at least initial interest or success. And the irony uh, and the full circleness of that would be um, would, would be a great coda to the to the story and and maybe the 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 deep the deepening roots of how the sport could actually last longer and succeed there. Right. And wouldn't it be wouldn't it be interesting if the team that came to Atlanta actually came uh, from South Florida in the same way that uh, South Florida had that WHA team that never actually got off the ground, the Eagles. Um, and Atlanta ended up becoming the spot, and then Atlanta ends up taking their NHL team too. All right, our thanks to Professor Tom, and uh, we encourage you uh, to uh, elevate uh, your level of understanding about this topic of professional hockey, the city and the region of Atlanta, and the various Uh, undercurrents as to why the sport has yet to firmly uh, get its grip uh, NHL-wise in that market. The book uh, just out from the University of Tennessee Press, it is called White Ice, Race and the Making of Atlanta Hockey. Uh, It is available wherever fine books are found. Uh, Purchase it wherever you can, Uh, perhaps down the street to your local uh, bookseller, uh, independent uh, he or she may be. Uh, But uh, if you'd like to give us a couple of referral shekels of love, uh, we'd love and appreciate it if you went to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Searching up this episode number 334, we will find some convenient links to Amazon uh, where you will uh, be um, uh, encouraged and uh, relatively easily so uh, to purchase said book. And we will get um, a nickel or dime or so uh, for that referral. And we appreciate that very much. It's really the only way we keep our lights on around here and uh, we can't appreciate that more and while you're there why don't you also pick up a copy of tom's other book that we talked about on uh, our previous episode number 244 uh called dixie ball race and professional basketball in the deep south uh that too also by the university of tennessee press make it a twosome will you uh double up your pleasure and uh enlighten yourselves uh, on both sports uh courtesy of Dr. Aiello. And uh, while you're on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com, you will notice that we've got 333 other episodes that we put out there since 2017. You can 
kind of just graze around there. Use the search box to find a topic or a particular team or person you might be interested in. Uh, and if we've had it there, you'll see it pop up for you there. Uh, and of course, you can find uh, convenient links to all of our books and various media and stuff there, too. Uh, and uh, if uh, you want to make sure that you don't miss a single stinking episode, well, make sure that you follow or, uh, us or um, subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts. We are available literally wherever you get podcasts. If you're having trouble finding us in your favorite podcast uh, app, please let us know because it would be a surprise to us. But we certainly go out of our way to fix it. Uh, you can also get us on YouTube. We publish there, too, as well simultaneously and all of our episodes are floating around there too uh feel free to stream them at your leisure there uh you can also find us on various forms of social media you'll find us on x slash twitter at good seats still you'll find us on uh, instagram uh and threads and uh, facebook uh at good seats still available and uh, you can send us email if you'd like we're at hello at good seats still available.com what else? Uh, Jerry Payne. Hey, you know, he's in the Atlanta area. Hopefully he learned a little something uh, if he didn't know already about hockey uh, this week in Atlanta. And uh, maybe he's already sort of thinking about what the uh, the third incarnation of NHL hockey might look like in the, in the name of a team that uh, if it ever domiciles again there, uh, what that nickname would be. Um, we uh, w- welcome uh, any of your suggestions as well. And uh, we, of course, thank you uh, to Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence for his editorial and uh, uh, production uh, wizardry again this week, as always. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Lots of fun stuff coming at you uh, as the uh, months roll on. Great guests, good books, and uh, wonderful and intriguing topics, and a whole bunch of them new ones uh, coming your way. Just stay tuned to your feed, and uh, thank you, as always, again, for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.